0: We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Hello, welcome to the Water Caller podcast. I'm Nick Cater, speaking to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. On November 9, 1954, the Prime Minister of the day, Robert Menzies, and the Federal President of the Liberal Party, William Hewson Anderson, issued a 17-point statement listing the principal beliefs of the Liberal Party. The statement was released to mark the 10th anniversary of the party, a movement that united the disparate forces of the centre-right, not behind a charismatic leader or an agreed set of policies or even some factional deal, but around a set of ideas. Today, on the eve of the party's 80th birthday, there's a sense that the Liberals again need a revival, a fresh sense of clarity, a clearer understanding of what we agree the party stands for and correspondingly what it stands against. The 1954 statement, often referred to as the We Believe statement, may be a good place to start the robust conversation that the Liberals badly need to have. Much of the We Believe statement is challenging for a modern audience. It's written in the language of the times for a country that was in many ways very different from the one we live in today but in the heart of it are a set of abiding liberal principles that speak not to specific circumstances but to the enduring human condition and when you begin to unpack each point as we plan to do in this series of podcasts they have more to say about the challenges we face today than you might at first imagine in this the first podcast in the we believe series i'll be joined by my Menzies Research Centre colleague, Freya Leach, and Georgina Downer, the head of the Robert Menzies Institute, to look at the context in which the We Believe statement was written and begin to get a feel for its contents. But before we do that, let's start by listening to the full statement read by Laura Thomas.
1: We believe in the crown as the enduring embodiment of our national unity and as the symbol of that unity and as the symbol of that other unity that exists between all nations of the British Commonwealth. We believe in Australia, her courage, her capacity, her future and her national sovereignty, exercised through parliaments deriving their authority from the people by free and open elections. We believe in the individual. We stand positively for the free man, his initiative, individuality, and acceptance of responsibility. We believe in the rule of law. Under it there is freedom for the nation and for all men and women. Democracy depends upon self-discipline, obedience to the law, the honest administration of the law. We believe in the spirit of the volunteer. This does not mean that we reject compulsion in matters in which a uniform obedience is needed by the community. But it does mean that the greatest community efforts can be made only when voluntary cooperation and self-sacrifice come in aid of and lend character to the performance of legal duties. We believe that rights connote duties and that sectional and selfish policies are destructive of good citizenship. We believe that it is the supreme function of government to assist in the development of personality, that today's dogma may turn out to be tomorrow's error, and that in consequence the interests of all legitimate minorities must be protected. We believe in liberty, not anarchy but an individual and social liberty based upon and limited by civilised conception of social justice. We believe that the class war is a false war. The real conflicts of our time is not between classes in the old sense, but between the iron discipline of autocracy, whether communist or fascist, and the self-imposed discipline of the free man. The spirit of man must prevail. We believe that liberalism means flexibility and progress. Its principles and its spiritual and intellectual approach enable it to meet and deal with new changing social and economic circumstances. By elevating the individual, it meets and defeats the terrible doctrine of the all-powerful state. We believe that improved living standards depend upon high productivity and efficient service, and that these vital elements can be achieved only by free and competitive enterprise. We believe that national, financial, and economic power and policy are not to be designed to control men's lives, but to create a climate in which men may be enabled to work out their own salvation in their own way. We believe in the great human freedoms to worship, to think, to speak, to choose, to be ambitious, to be independent, to be industrious, to acquire skill, to seek and earn reward. We believe in social justice, in encouraging the strong and protecting the weak, in widening opportunities for education, in the preservation of family, in good homes owned by those who live in them. We believe in religious and racial tolerance among our citizens. We believe that all forms of industry primary, or secondary, or otherwise, depend one upon the other, and that their community of interest will be the guarantee of the nation's growth. We believe that under the blessing of divine providence and given goodwill, mutual tolerance and understanding, energy and an individual sense of purpose, there is no task which Australia cannot perform, and no difficulty which she cannot overcome.
0: Well Freya, those statements were written and delivered, I think almost half a century before you were born, uh, what do you think, is it, is it, your immediate reaction is that sort of arcane sounding historical language, maybe a little bit easier to understand than Shakespeare but a little bit harder than TikTok, I don't know, what does it sound like to you?
2: It sounds inspiring, I definitely think it. some of the language you probably wouldn't use as much today, uh, but in terms of the vision that it sets out, I find it quite rousing, really.
0: It's kind of like, oh, yeah,
2: I want to be a part of that. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> Better than TikTok
3: dances, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what, do you, what do you reckon, Georgina?
3: I agree, and look, it was beautifully read just then, so it's always nicer to hear it beautifully articulated rather than just on a dry page. I, I was thinking, as Laura was reading it, it's quite long, isn't it? and the the newer version, I think that was adopted about twenty years ago, is uh, is quite a bit shorter, and I wonder in the TikTok generation whether they'd be able to concentrate for that long. even my my generation might struggle. look, it it's clearly dated. The language around, you know, talking about men, not, not particularly talking about women, it, it's quite, yeah, you know, it is quite old-fashioned. And I think as a, you know, as a as a professional woman, i am slightly sort of slightly irked by that. Um, but uh, but a lot of the lot of the ideas, you know, it's a head nod moment, which of course would have been its purpose.
0: I would say this, wouldn't I? But, I mean, yes, sure, if we were writing it today, it would be uh, less gendered, I suppose. Uh, but it, let's face it, that that really is um, uh, a, gl- a glossing on the top, I'd, I'd say, without wishing to get into too much trouble, Freya, but it's a glossing on the top because what really matters, of course, is the principles and ideas be- beneath it. So do you think that uh, we can get our minds past those sort of slightly awkward References to man and mankind and and uh, and look at it more for what what lies behind it.
2: I think we have to. I think a big mistake that a lot of my peers often make is you might have an issue with how something is presented or the person who said it. And automatically, that is tried, they try to use that to strike out the relevance of the entire piece of work. But the reality is that, everything is situated within a historical context and this statement was as well but there are sort of enduring beliefs and principles and values that are really beautifully articulated in this statement and I think to actually appreciate it in all its fullness we have to understand that it was a historical document that emerged out of a particular historical moment and that actually adds depth and richness to it.
0: Well Georgina you are the keeper of the flame when it comes to um all matters uh, to do with Menzies and Menzies' history there as the chief executive of the Robert Menzies Institute. So come on, give us, what was the context in which that was given? It was the 10th anniversary of the party. We know that, 1954. Do we know anything more?
3: Yeah, so so it was produced as a pamphlet by Robert Menzies, who was the leader of the Liberal Party. He was principal founder of the Liberal Party, and his federal director, William Anderson. And and I think it's interesting to reflect William Anderson's past, his history. So he had, in the 40s, formed the Services and Citizens Party. And that was one of the groups that came together at the Albury Conference in in 43 to to discuss the – sorry, 44 – to discuss the founding of the Liberal Party. So he'd been there from the get-go, William Anderson – and they decided to, as a commemorative pamphlet uh, to to create this this statement. I understand it was just re, republished every year. um the the um historian of the Liberal Party in Hancock is a little bit dismissive. He said um of this statement, uh, the We believe statement managed to sound momentous in stating the unexceptional. And that um it was disinclined to engage in systematic and close philosophical analysis the Liberals just kept reprinting, we believe, through the nineteen sixties. So that you know, that's in Hancock's view. But look, I guess it was a crystallization of a set of of values uh that, that and principles that the Liberal Party was champion in in that 1950s period. Thinking about the, the broader context, this of course was the Cold War. Um, Robert Menzies had tried to ban the Communist Party in 1951. Uh, he had failed in that attempt, but you know communism was the sort of bogeyman uh, out, out there and within. So there's a lot of concern about um, freedom and the individual, and, um, and really eschewing any kind of state control or socialisation of industry. I think also um, what's interesting to note is both uh, William Anderson and Robert Menzies were Presbyterians. So there's a that kind of um, uh, ethic of duty duty to one's country, duty to uh, one's fellow man or woman, a duty to one's children. And that's something that I find very striking in this statement, um, particularly in contrast to the more contemporary one, is the contemporary one doesn't really talk about what we need to do as individuals. It's more about what individuals have rights to, to in society, expectations. So this one is heavily skewed to... You, you may get some rights, but with your rights, um, and it says, I think, in number six, we believe that rights connote duties, and that I think is a very presbyterian ethic. But finally, I would say, of course, there is the um, John Stuart Mill uh, real flavour to it that that focus on the individual, the freedom of thought and expression and association, and that limited authority. Of, of the state, of the overpowering state on the individual, that there's an ultimate respect for the individual coming through this. And look, a lot of it has come from Menzies' forgotten people speeches in the in the 19, early 40s, in 1943 and 42, and even some of it is repeated in this statement, some quotes from those forgotten people speeches. So you know, it's definitely something that Menzies had been working on for a, for a decade, a decade or more before this this statement was written.
0: Yeah, I there is a, a touch of Presbyterianism in there, but also um, Anglicanism. And I think we'd speak as three Anglicans here. But but we'd be familiar with with the creed that is part of the liturgy every every Sunday in my church, at least. Uh, you know, where we go through. I, we believe in the Father. We believe in the Son. We believe in the Holy Ghost. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Uh, the resurrected dead, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, but the difference I think between that and this is that the creed is uh, divine; it comes from God. It's sacred. Uh, we would never dream, I hope, of changing it. Uh, although I dare say there's Anglicans who uh, have had a go. Uh, but this one, I think, Freya, we can change. This is not the same status. Is it? it's, a, it's 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 the thoughts of a very wise man. Uh, maybe a couple of very wise men, uh, sorry, men, and maybe some women in there too. But but it's not holy writ.
2: No, that's right. And I mean, looking at this now, I wonder, I mean, I'm just curious, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. But the first statement is, we believe in the crown, mm. which is fascinating. Because if you actually compare that to the current Liberal Party, we believe statement, which takes inspiration from Menzies' original statement... It's Australia first, whereas for Menzies' statement, it's Australia second, Crown first. So I wonder if perhaps that is something that has shifted, and what your thoughts on that are.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think he started with the the hardest one first, in a way, didn't he? Uh, the hardest one for us, anyway. Now, mm. but I, I think we we'll have come back and look at this next week when we we've got to go through these in order. We'll do the hard one first, and we're going to have to wrestle with that one, I think, to make it. Uh, I mean, I'm a monarchist. I, I believe you know those words stand pretty well. But what about you, Georgina? How how are we going to negotiate our way around this really confronting language about the crown?
3: Well, look, it 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 was updated, as Freya said. Uh, it it represented moment in time, and I think you know for some decades, um, it it represented the prevailing view. So in um, in 1954 the Queen first visits Australia uh, in the February. It's a 55-day visit. Can you imagine the Queen and Prince Philip travelling around Australia for 55 days? They visited 57 cities and towns through that period. This was the absolute apogee of popular monarchism. I mean, people, people adored the Queen and I think the figures are something like 75% of the Australian population at the time physically saw her because there was no TV. The TV didn't come till 1956 in Australia. So if you wanted to see the Queen in Australia, you had to attend one of the functions around Australia to do that. So this statement would have been unremarkable. I mean... Of course we believe in the Crown. We've just had the Queen visit. How wonderful. We're, we're really proud that we're part of the British Commonwealth and we have this system. We are united in, in that. Uh, the, the Republicans in Australia were a very very tiny minority at that time, um, although they did exist. So I think you, you over, overcome problems with this statement in 2023 by just understanding the context.
0: A common theme uh, running through this statement is is the freedom of the individual, as you've already mentioned, Georgina, and the opposition to the all-controlling state. Uh, This is, of course, set in the context of the Cold War. It speaks of elevating the individual to meet and defeat the terrible doctrine of the all-power state. Uh, Now, the Soviet Union may no longer longer be with us, uh, but I find those words eerily current. Freya, did you think that they speak to anything specific in our time, uh, possibly the way we managed COVID, for instance, but uh, it's an open question.
2: I think that in a few senses, I mean, firstly, the idea, number 10 of liberalism, meaning flexibility and progress. I don't often think the Liberal Party gets enough credit for the fact that it is a party about reform. It's not about necessarily being conservative for the sake of preserving the existing structures. It's about being conservative because I think the question people always forget to ask when we think about conservatism and progress is what are we trying to conserve and what are we trying to progress towards? That is, that is critical. And that helps us actually interpret this statement in the context of today. The Liberal Party has a vision of the individual and a vision of Australia that we want to conserve, but we are willing to progress uh, and, and implement reforms that move us towards that vision. If, if we need progress to achieve that, well, that's what we do. But we also have to resist against the left. And I think that um, <laughs> the uh, the terrible doctrine of the all-powerful state is definitely still relevant today. I think perhaps I come at this from a bit of a different angle. Um, I think that the identity politics and the class war that Menzies talked about is being basically adapted to the 21st century to mean things like your race, your your gender those things have become that is the new class war uh and how that then plays out in the stage i think will be very interesting so yeah i think this statement is very relevant
0: today georgina
3: well yeah and i i'd pick up on that statement number nine that um you know that the class war is a false war and the real conflicts of our time is not between the classes in the old sense, but between between the iron discipline of autocracy, whether communist or fascist, and the self-imposed discipline of the free man. I mean that 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 idea, I mean, that that might be dated in that we're not in in that post immediate post-World War II phase or the the early stages of the Cold War now. But these ideas that um, authoritarianism is not just not just with outside of Australia threatening threatening our liberal democratic order and the the, the rules based international order that we we know and love it's it can be within and it's insidious through the march through institutions and look I sit here in in Victoria uh, we had the world's longest lockdown in Melbourne uh, the. I mean, the hand of the state and the power of the state to impose the most ridiculous restrictions on individuals that I am I am sad to say, you know, maybe even ashamed to say, as Victorians are uh, accepted with very little, very little protest or, or criticism. You know, it was sort of a rather uncritical acceptance. I worry that this self-imposed discipline of the free man, where is, where is that? Where is that today? Are we not encouraging free thinking, critical thinking, which we have rather lazily perhaps, uh, or is it because we have so much of the good life here that we, we've sort of given up on critical thinking, on free thinking?
0: In this special series of watercooler podcasts, we're attempting to do something big, to define the values that unite Australian liberals in the 21st century. The We Believe podcasts are a forum for free-ranging discussion that we hope will promote a wider conversation about the things we really believe in, the ties that bind us as a political movement and the principles for which we can develop better policy. It's an ambitious project And we couldn't do it without your help which is why we value the support of our growing group of paid subscribers you can join them by signing up for just ten dollars a month just go to the menzies research center website for details or click on the link in the podcast notes there are a number of uh, words and phrases i think that might surprise a liberal audience particularly anybody who thought of themselves as we like to describe ourselves sometimes as conservatives Uh, For instance, social justice, uh, that's a term we associate very much with the left these days, Freya. How do you think, uh, uh, is it just that that, uh, we've forgotten about social justice or is it that the social justice that we talk about so often today is actually a different kind of concept altogether?
2: I think social justice is definitely a term that has been absolutely hijacked by the left. Uh, Totally. And especially for young people and how we think about justice, it is totally associated with Labour and even increasingly the Greens, actually, because Labour is now becoming the scary party that's too right wing. But I think that, um, yeah, the the Liberal Party uh, and liberalism as a whole has definitely suffered a lot from being perceived as a party that doesn't care about fairness if you think about the language that labor politicians so often use it's all about we believe in a fair go we believe in equality for all these are the lines that they keep using and i think it sort of it definitely tries to ice uh, the right out from any um, association with the concepts of justice but here i mean how do you, Nick, think that this concept of social justice that Menzies articulated in the We Believe statement differs from the one that's, that's chucked around in mainstream media today?
0: Well, since you ask, I do have some, some views on that. So I'll, I on thought that. you might. I'll, let, me, let me put them out there and see if you agree. So I mm. think what happened, if you look at the history of the party, you go back to Menzies, start with Menzies. Menzies said that he felt as a prime minister he wanted to leave the country a more prosperous and just country than the one uh, he began his prime ministership in. More prosperous and just. Now, it clearly went hand in hand, and Menzies Elsewhere talks a lot about the importance of things that can't be measured in pounds, shillings and pence, or dollars and cents, as I guess we'd update it today. But but he's, he's very clear on this. There is this other dimension. It's about civilization, It's about uh, treating people with due respect and, and supporting those who need our support. He's not, um, he's not frightened about coming forward with that, but it changes I think uh, round about Thatcher, Reagan, Howard. Um, now what happens then is that we get fixated on the idea that we're there to fix the economy. You know, our whole story becomes, as you'd remember Georgina, a very economic story there in the, in the 1980s. In fact, the party is split if anything over, over, over economic theory. Uh, and then we get into the habit of coming in and and fixing Labor governments' messes. You know, fa- pa- that's the first thing we do when we get into power. We have to sort of sort out what Labor's messed up. Uh, and I think that we, over time, it's that's all we think about now—the economic side. Or are in danger that that's all we think about, um, and we have to, I think, rediscover a message that is both about economic management and, in the end, that's that's in in, in support of prosperity and uh, also. How do we make people's lives fairer? How do we make this a more just and fair country? Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, no, that's a really interesting perspective on it. And I really appreciated the sort of historical lens as well. I think I was actually reflecting on this the other day. It's very ironic that social justice is used so much by the left because if you look at what they've done, It's almost, it really is an erosion of justice and of individual opportunity, because you think about the female uprising against Scott Morrison, for for example. What was it that he actually did? What was it? What did he say? What did he do that was misogynistic, that was racist, that was targeting minorities? I really struggle to find a specific example that could explain the furor with which women and particularly young people rejected Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party, and I can't help but think it was because he was basically portrayed as a middle-aged white male from the suburbs, and and he was a Christian, which didn't help, and he was married, uh, and and that was enough, and so. I think we've actually, in the left's pursuit of social justice, they've actually perverted it, and it's now very unjust. Because how cruel to judge someone, literally based not what on not what on he said or his actions, uh, but just on the identity and the box that he fits in.
0: Georgina, is it too late, or can we? Um... Can we get that phrase social justice back from the left? Can we start putting our tanks on their lawn by by using it loudly?
3: Well, it's amazing how the use of language and the way that terms are associated with particular political movements changes over time. So Robert Menzies famously said that he chose the name Liberal because he wanted the Liberal Party to be a progressive party. So in the 1940s, being progressive was being a liberal, a small L liberal and then a capital L liberal. Now, if you're a progressive, I'm a progressive, you're you're left-wing, right? Uh, even the term liberal in, in the United States now means quite a, a left-wing person, a supporter of the Democrat Party. I found it really interesting reading this We Believe statement from 1954 and thinking about social justice and the use of that term, which I think is used twice in the statement, and I also was reflecting on the fact that the quality of opportunity, which is something the liberals, modern day liberals use a lot, was not used in, in that in that phraseology. And I actually wondered if maybe what Menzies was meaning by social justice in 54 was is probably what modern day liberals would mean um when they say quality of opportunity. And I I think that the way social justice as a term of art has evolved has shifted obviously from from one that was about a quality of opportunity your, through your hard effort hard work your efforts, your your ambition, you can create the good life for yourself and your family and you can contribute to bigger society. So it's forward looking. Social justice today is is about the past and righting the wrongs of the past, and I, I've, it's amazing to chart that evolution. And, of course, B.A. Santa Maria uses uh, the Catholic activist in the, the 50s and 60s. Uh, he uses this, you know, social justice as a term and, and it has much more of a kind of a, a left-wing perspective, although he was a complicated person um, in terms of his, his ideology. Uh, but I, I do think social justice, of course, could be co-opted back by the centre right in Australia. Absolutely, but by by focusing again on on the future rather than the past. I mean, saying social justice, it's about these days, about um, intergenerational grief and disadvantage, and what terrible things happen in the past or because of your identity that that means you are seeking some kind of retribution or reparation. Yeah, certainly not what Menzies had in when he was talking about social justice.
0: Yeah, it is interesting that you point out he doesn't use the phrase equality of opportunity there uh, because elsewhere, of course, Menzies was quite, uh, spoke passionately about that. He said it was the one thing he was really felt was the thing that was so important in our society. It, it's it's part of the principle that every everybody deserves equal respect everybody deserves a fair go etc an equal go but of course that's not um that it's not as absolute as that is it because in in the end it's probably impossible to achieve absolute uh, equality of opportunity i mean some people are very careless for instance in the parents they choose, (laughs) grow up in poor homes or don't have the educational opportunities or whatever. So does that, do you think that that whole concept of equality of opportunity is something that we can emphasize once again, and by doing so appeal to the generation that you're part of that are so adamant about the importance of social justice?
2: Yes and no. (laughs)
0: I love answers like that
2: (laughs) the most appealing thing or the thing that I think Gen Z and millennials need to hear is that regardless of your poor choice in parents you can still succeed that is the key message and and that is exactly what they're not being told by the other side of politics they're being told that actually in Australia wealth is concentrated in the top 1%, 1%, Your the station you were born into is the station you will remain in for the rest of your life. And all of these factors beyond your control will dictate the outcomes that, that are possible for you to achieve. And so I think equality of opportunity as a, as a concept is a difficult one to start engaging with because obviously in principle we would agree with it. But like you said, how do you actually create true equality of opportunity without mass intervention in I mean all sorts of things right so perhaps we need to reframe equality of opportunity not in the sense of material equality but in a recommitment to well as Menzies talks about it here widening opportunities that's different to equality because I don't think like we have to be realistic, and we we lose credibility as a party when we use terms like equality of opportunity without taking seriously their true meaning. So perhaps going back to what Menzies actually talked about, which is widening opportunities for education, widening, and and specifically as well, good homes owned by those who live in them. Uh, so it's not really talking about material equality and I think that is something that uh, we need to reinforce for young people so I guess I sort of didn't really answer your question but (laughs) those are my thoughts.
0: (laughs) You don't have to answer the question but i would be interested on Georgina's take on this Georgina because you are um, you work right there in the heart of the main campus at Melbourne University University of Melbourne you must mix quite a bit with with young people starting out on life surely the The message, Menzies puts in another speech, the freedom to do your best and make your best better, surely that's got to appeal to people starting out in their careers in life.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would have thought so, but um, I do think that the messages that kids uh, receive these days are about all all the bad that has happened to to people and it's about righting those wrongs there's a lot of you know reflecting on um, injustices that have happened through the the decades and centuries of Australian history but sort of more broadly across across the globe and then you know in terms of climate change you know and there's sort of this climate emergency climate injustice you know this is what our parents have done to us our grandparents have done to us is give us a planet that's dying so how do we seek justice I mean this is this is um, this is I I see as what what is driving a lot of a lot of young people on campus now is is sort of how do I play a role in these in in finding a way to seek justice and I'm not sure that then the, back to their sort of individual experience of how you know freedom to choose choose where I work choose you know, choose my life choose my interests all those things. They should, be, they should be really appealing, but I'm not sure they're the things that are driving them at the moment.
0: When it comes to a choice between, you know, change everything now, um, you know, climate emergency, let's fix it. It comes between that or, or a message of, um, well, let's uh, in a responsible and gradual way uh, change this or ameliorate that. Uh, as a liberal might approach the problem, we're always going to be on the back foot, aren't we? We're going to lose that argument with young people
2: that's the difficulty right and I think as well there's there's probably an eternal anxiety of young people about the future I don't think that's unique to my generation I'm sure every generation has probably you know you the young people feel like oh the world's so scary
3: all this change and
0: I'm not so sure about previous generations but we can talk about that another time
3: I would disagree and I think interesting we're a unique threesome here because I and apologies Nick um but I think Nick's about 20 years older than me and I'm about 20 years older than Freya so we have a nice kind of mix of three generations Mm. um I I didn't I didn't grow grow up with a sense of anxiety I think my my mother my mother might have Mm. um she describes the 1960s so my mother was born in 1952 so she's a she's you know like a high school student in the 1960s, and there was a sense that the world could end because it was Cuban Missile Crisis, there was obviously the Soviet Union versus the United States, Um, is is this mutually assured destruction over some nuclear holocaust. There was a lot of anxiety then, but I'm not sure my generation was that anxious, to be honest. I think there was a, a relatively good level of optimism throughout my generation.
0: I wrote about this in my book, *The Lucky Culture*, and I pinned the change I think around about 1973 or 74. And you can see it in the movies. You know, in the 60s we're producing all these feel-good movies. You know, those magnificent men in their flying machine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in the 70s we start to get the disaster movies. You know, the um, what was that one about the skyscraper that falls down or the earthquake that destroys a dam and washes. You know, everything starts to turn bad. Let's get back to the subject, because Georgina, you have a, um, I think you told me, a hard out at 11.30, so we better press on. (laughs) Let's move on to uh, a little bit more about Christianity, which we've already mentioned. In the most uh, recent, uh, in 1954, in the the census in in 1954, the the year this statement came out, 89% of Australians identified as Christian. Only 0.3% said they had no religion. And in the most recent census, 2021, the proportion of Australians are Christians is less than half of that, 44%. And meanwhile, 39% tick the new no religion box. So if we were to update this statement, Freya, will the references to anything spiritual have to go?
2: Oh, that's a tough question. That is a very, very, very tough question, Nick. I don't believe human beings can really function without a sense of anything spiritual. And so if you don't have organized religion, as they did in Menzies' day, and we still do today, but at, at a far lower level, well, what do you have? And I think there still is a sense of... People still worship stuff, you know? They still have things that they look to for... For meaning and for purpose, so I'm not sure. I don't think I think that innate human spirituality still exists, but perhaps it's not being expressed in such conventional um, terms associated with organised religion.
0: I'll just read the last of these points. Seventeen. We believe that under the blessing of the of divine providence under the blessing of divine providence and given goodwill, mutual tolerance and understanding, energy and individual sense of purpose, there is no task which Australia cannot perform and no difficulty which she cannot overcome. Now, I mean, we no problem with the back half of that. I would think that we, 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 we believe there's no task that, that Australia can't overcome if it puts its mind to it. But the idea that we need also divine providence in that, um, we all need God's blessing I get that, but I sense uh, some a lot of people in today's society, and and certainly some liberals would would balk at that, don't you think, Georgina?
3: Well, I I do. I think it it rings a little bit um, old fashioned to me, um, but it it's the context, right? I mean, as you, as you state, it's eighty nine percent of Australians at that time identified as Christian. A lot would have gone to church every week. Uh, it was a you know, time of white Australia. Let's be honest. So the population now is is hugely multicultural in Australia. So people are coming from from countries that and and cultural backgrounds that are not at all Christian. They might be might be Muslim or you know, from China. There's obviously not a great deal of religion there. Uh, so so I think talking about divine providence does date this statement. I'm not. I agree with Freya. I think people do have a sense of spirituality and meaning and that gives them purpose in life. And, you know, Jordan Peterson has made a whole career about talking about the importance of having a sense of, of purpose and belief. But I I think that talking about spirituality and belief in, in a God in a political value statement is, is, is probably not, not quite what we're – it's not going to – it's it's gonna have a problem of alienating some people when it doesn't need to be. Uh, but but that said, I mean in the statement there's um a call for religious tolerance, racial tolerance, these are really important and I think a recognition that people are spiritual and, and religious within our community. I mean, even to this day, forty four percent say they say they're Christian. So there's still almost half the population. Um, but I'm not sure that in a political value statement that needs to be um, emphasised in terms of the spirituality that needs to be as emphasised as strongly as it once once was. We're just a different society now, for better or worse.
0: Two questions to Enbridge. Which of the 17 points uh, do you have most difficulty with? Or to put it another way, which do you think would be hardest to incorporate into a revised, we believe, statement if we were to do it today? Freya?
2: I would definitely say the first one, The Crown, um, or the one about, the one we just discussed, um, about divine providence. And I don't think that you would have to necessarily reject the principle underlying those statements, because if you look at We Believe in the Crown, as the enduring embodiment of our national unity. I think you, you need to keep that national unity and that's something to be preserved. And it was the crown uh, in Menzies' day. Personally, I still think it should be the crown because I am a monarchist, but uh, perhaps widening that language. Um, and like in the Liberal Party statements as a constitutional head of state, um, I'm not sure how you get around that, how you maintain that national unity Unity expression without the crown. I'm not sure what that that symbol would actually be for us, um, but perhaps that's some of the intellectual work we have to do to reform the statement and, and bring it
3: into the 21st century. Georgina, look, I had uh, noted down both of those. So, with without wanting to repeat, Freya, um, might I suggest that? We believe that it is the supreme function of government to assist in the development of personality, that today's dogma may turn out to be tomorrow's error and that in consequence the interests of all legitimate minorities must be protected. So I don't think we have a problem with the the second part of the phrase there. But I think the first, the first bit is a little bit, it's a bit hard to understand. I think the word personality is perhaps more about the development of, of character, of good good character to develop good upstanding citizens rather than your personality type? Like are you assertive or (laughs) extroverted, introverted? Um, I'm also not sure whether I'm that comfortable with the supreme function of government um, assisting in the development of my character, if we are going to replace personality with character. I I find this statement a little bit unusual and I'd like to know – how 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 it came came to be? Um, I understand that the second half actually came out of one of Menzies' um, forgotten people speeches. It was the one on freedom of speech, so it's a direct quote. But the first half, um, yeah, I find that I find that a little bit curious, personally, uncomfortable with that one.
0: I often. Uh have trouble with Menzies when he talks about the supreme function of government he he, in another context he says that the most important government thing a government needs to do is to create uh, an environment or an atmosphere in which business thrives now I agree that's enormously important but whether it's you know the most important thing whether it's more important than say keeping our borders safe you know I'm not sure I think it's when Menzies gets onto these superlatives that there's room for questioning. But anyway, look, I mean, we've said we said at the start that this is this is written. This is not holy writ. Uh, it, it, there, there may be things in there that can be amended. There may be things that Robert Menzies missed out altogether. And this is where it gets interesting. Freya, what, what, what's missing in the we believe statement that you think we would want to put in if we were doing this as a revised version?
2: Today, I think you would probably want to include something about environmental stewardship and the intergenerational, I mean, it's a conservative idea, the, the contract between the generations and stewarding what we have today for the next generation. I think that would be helpful for guiding I mean the environment is clearly a key issue for a lot of people as they're voting today and I think having a philosophical understanding of how liberals should approach policy around the environment would be very helpful for us because I think at the moment there are a lot of people that are sort of going in blindly Uh, we haven't really thought much about what does a liberal approach to the environment today look like so I think including a value statement about what the environment means to us as liberals. And the necessary implication is what should the role of government be in that, in preserving that environment and, and how should government be relating to it. Um, so for me, I think that would include definitely an affirmation of the importance of the environment, of a clean environment, one that is preserved. But we should include something in there about what the role of government in that
0: is, Georgina, what's missing?
3: Well, as a former diplomat, I guess what's missing for me is much mention of of the the world outside our borders and how we'd like it to to operate. I was actually quite surprised because Menzies was a great international statesman, so I think the there's obviously the the mention of um, the British commonwealth there's a mention of communism and fascism as sort of alternate systems of, of, of autocracy, but but not how do we how do we see our place in the world? How do we, how do we see the preferred system of global governance? Uh, these days we talk about liberal democracies, the importance of liberal democracies working together for peace and stability and prosperity throughout the world, uh, the importance of a rules-based international order, the, and, and the importance of forging alliances and friendships and partnerships with like-minded nations. I mean, that is a core capital liberal value. But we, we take a bilateral approach and an alliance-based approach rather than focusing too heavily on the multilateral global govern, government system because we see partnerships with like-minded. as so, so important. And like-minded, let's be honest, it means liberal democracies. So all democracies. Mm-hmm some less liberal than others these days. So, so I think I would like to see that in a values statement. And as I said, I was quite surprised there wasn't. Yeah,
0: I'd agree with that. I, that was the thing that jumped out at me. And, and I think, you know, today as we see the, the liberal global world order that Menzies helped establish along with Roosevelt, Churchill and those other great Western leaders of the time, as we see that under challenge, it would be nice to see that asserted in the We Believe statement. And then the other the other point I think on international affairs, and and you might want to comment on this quickly, Georgina, because Menzies held out; he he was not in favour of signing international treaties with the UN that would bind our hand domestically. He thought we should keep uh, our sovereign right to decide policy. But of course, that happened almost immediately. He left office, uh, and and has carried on with great gusto since, hasn't it? And it, it does mean that that our government. Um, has to uh, do certain things that that possibly it wouldn't do if it wasn't for those treaties, georgina.
3: Well that's right of course the uh, very famous Franklin Dam case <laughs> meant that uh, the federal government could uh, could do all sorts of things domestically um if it had signed an international treaty under under the external affairs power, so uh, it has it has enlarged the role and powers of the federal government in Australia at the you know, obviously, um, uh, to the detriment of the powers of the states. Um, look, Menzies was a realist, absolutely a realist. Uh, he believed in power, in great powers, and he said even great powers need small friends like Australia. So he saw a use for Australia, but he 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 was he was wary of the United Nations, and and of course. You know, with the United Nations, it was all nations, and some of them were countries that, that Menzies did not have much time for, particularly the communist ones. Uh, so he, you know, he saw the value in those relationships with, of course, Great Britain, but but the United States, particularly, um, is, is so important to Australia, and even even Japan. In 1957, Menzies was signing the commerce agreement with Japan absolutely essential to our prosperity but but you know really far-sighted in that it saw in lifting up Japan as a democracy as an economic power would actually create a country that Australia could form a very very strong partnership with not just economically but also philosophically and uh, in preservation of of the the world order that that we prefer.
0: So before we go, Freya, final question is there enough in this we believe statement uh, to do another 17 podcasts
2: (laughs) I definitely think there is I mean I just really want to dig into each one I think we could 100% do an entire podcast on each one of these statements uh, and bring in experts and have a really lively discussion about each one of them and I really look forward to doing that
0: well thank you Georgina for getting us off to a good start pleasure thank you Freya and we'll do it all again next week been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the menzies research center we'd like to bring you many more of course and you can help us by subscribing from just ten dollars a month go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe i'm nick cater and thank you for listening